another time, there was an island. Hello, my lovers. Welcome to the Athen Podcast. It's been a while. I don't really remember how we left things, or how long ago that was. The custodians, the staff at the hall, became worried, agitated, about events on the mainland. I remember that much, and I was confined to my room, for the good of the island. That was some time ago. I'm sorry it's taken so long to put out another of these, but I think it's worth the wait. You see, once the threat had dimmed, enough for the staff to let me out. Not of the hall, you understand, just my room. I was able to explore the house again, and I found a book. It's a small volume, by an author I'd known, but I've never seen this book before. It's by Meliora Ray, who wrote the poem that my arts group, Granite and Glitter, take our name from. But this, this paperback with a battered, faded cover, is something different to her poetry. Though there is something poetic about it. It's certainly melodramatic. As best I can tell, it's a collection of folk tales. The stories of Athen, bound together by some unknown narration. Meliora herself, perhaps. Or someone else. Hard to say. All I know is that once I'd read it, I knew I wanted to share. So that's what I'll do. A story and episode, or thereabouts. With Meliora's text intact. She had annotated the book with footnotes, telling the story of the lords that lived here, and I won't read them, unless you'd like to hear them. Do let me know. I've been given access to the internet again, so I can resume posting on the Athen Trust Instagram. The staff have managed it whilst I've been gone. I'm not sure they've been that consistent. But enough. Let's begin. The book is called Athen. An account, true and strange, of an island and its people. By Meliora Ray. How do you lose an island? Once upon a time, there was a man and a woman who did not have a child of their own. They lived on a small spit of land that jutted out from the northernmost point of the county of Cornwall, a wide expanse of moor covered in granite and gorse and stories. Walking by the sea one day, Hand in hand, surf-shod and striding, they heard a mewling from the rocks that were lapped by the sea on the beach. Sitting in a rock pool, swaddled in seaweed, and crying his little eyes out, was a baby giant. They knew he was a giant, because his skin was dark like slate and streaked with quartz lines, and his hands beat cracks in the rocks at his sides in anguish. Knowing how these things are done, Having heard the stories, sung the songs, the couple took the boy home and raised him as their own, naming him Gao on the way. He grew to be a fine young man, 
thirty feet tall and climbing as he reached his seventeenth year. But the other giants of the county made fun of him, not having giant parents, being raised by such little people and living in a funny lumpen barn built by their funny little house. They spent their time taunting him and throwing rocks. This is why Athen has such rocky tours today, until he ran home crying to his parents. One day, having had enough of all this, the little giant mustered all of his energy, and, tying the sand into knotted skeins of rope, lashed them about their little peninsula, and began to pull. This little spit of land, this Athen, broke free from Cornwall. Pulled by the little giant, it went further and further out to sea, until, halfway between Boscastle and the Celtic Deep, the little giant stopped, exhausted, and sank down into the waves, resting weary arms. After a few moments, he pulled his aching body up, up onto the high moors now sea-swept and swirling with gulls, happily ravaging the plover nests and scarab beetles brought as an unexpected bounty to a previously barren patch of sea. And, peeling back the turf and scrag, the giant stepped inside to sleep, pulling the landscape up around his ears to block out the noise and the wind. He's still there now, the shape of his sleep forming the ridges and furrows of Gow Tor and Hawthorn roots swaddle him, and the sea crashing below fills his dreams. Or, many millions of years ago, the earth heaved herself in heat and crunching agony and pushed together the shoulder blades of land that sat at the bottom of the ocean. Molten and steaming, a jagged spear of metamorphic rock forced its way through stormy, brine-boiled seas and cooled in the heat of the morning sun. This tangled mass of slate and granite weathered the waves that beat its shores, that ground rocks to sand in the safety of its inlets and coves, that churned others to spiked sentinels and reefs at the bases of its cliffs, and hollowed and winnowed into caves that ran through it like half-abandoned arteries of salted, tear-stained blood. Grass began to creep across the back of this new island. Kept in check by a governess of wind and along its sheltered valleys, the rocking cycle of decay and growth increased the soil, covered bare rocks with shaggy green life. Hawthorn, nursemaid of the forest, dropped unwittingly by passing birds, grew into groves and fed the earth, built the loam and mulched the soil, joined oak and elder and elm, blown on the wind, washed ashore in wayward currents, taking root in the soil. They grew and expanded, and shaded the dells and hollowways, watered by the little streams that had sprung up when nobody was looking from the modest peaks of the moor. And an island was born. All. There has always been an island. It was never not a fact. Whether anybody knew about it or not changed little about that. It was there, unmapped, unmoving, unmanned. The oceans of the world are full of little islands that nobody knows are there. Trees falling in forests, shouts in the vacuums. They all teem with stories and melody and do not care if they are never found by passing ships or spotted from the window of an aeroplane.
They exist regardless. They don't need us. But I'm telling a story. So Aethon it is. Aethon whose secrets are still held despite its torrid history of man. Take my hand and trust me. Walk into the sea. By the time we reach that distant shore, just visible from this little fishing village, tourists thronging, few thinking twice about the flickering shape in heat-haze clarity on the horizon. They won't notice the two of us. Waist-deep and still walking, for the boat we need doesn't moor in this harbour. It waits for us, out there. Once upon a time, there was an island. The boat, when you reach it, I'm still here, trust me, seems small for the journey ahead. And the captain, who sits at the stern and reaches down and plucks you from the waves like a limpet from a rock, like a pebble, does not smile or frown, but sits placid at his station, one hand on the tiller, the other rolling a golden coin between its knuckles, and gazes out to sea. Settle. The little motor seems incongruous on this boat that's clearly meant for oars, but even Athen can't resist a little light progress every now and then. So the smell of diesel is your companion for the journey. It's not unpleasant. Like the smell of compost in the garden, it's part of the scene. Gradually, the shape on the horizon begins to clarify like a bedroom window after waking, sleep dropping away and the morning seeping in. If you turned, though you won't, will you? You would see the distant shores of that fabled peninsula fading, fading into sea spray behind you. An occasional flash of silvered blue comforts you with the presence of a dolphin, and every now and then the dog head of a seal breaks the surface of the water to make sure your journey is going well. Black eyes and squat heads and still you want to pet one. It seems remarkable that they are mistaken for mermaids. And yet, the longer you look, the more likely it seems, and you lean forward, out, over the gunwale. The captain, though he does not stop looking at his course, reaches out with his coin arm and places a firm hand on your shoulder. Drown yourself on your own time, he says. I have a job to do. When it comes into view, the mists that ring it clearing and leaving the island on display, it takes away your breath and replaces it with sea-breezed lungfuls of anticipation and glory. The boat hangs bobbing for a moment, in the harbour to the east of the island. Admiralty Bluff kept close to the left, gibbet rocks still swinging in the water. It takes a steady hand to land a boat here. The spray from the waves erases the lower halves of the cliffs and beaches like pencil from a page, and the boat lands on this shore to the crunch of unseen pebbles. Disembarking into a foot of ice-cold seawater, by the time the breath has returned and you've hoisted your luggage onto your shoulder and turned around to thank your captain, the boat is already halfway lost in the mist, the painted name on the stern, bobbing bobbing and gone. And now, here we are. Thee and me, me and thee.
us alone, save for the sing of the shore, the wind in the trees, that figure on the hill. Down country and dangerous with the wind whipping close around and blocking out the voices that would warn you away. Cornwall lies west across the sea, a county whose folklore is a beaty bloody heart in its chest, pumping stories to each and every corner, keeping the circulation going, keeping the fingers warm. A land of history and provenance, a country within a county. Some babies, when they are born, have a heart outside their chest. Here sits Ethan, connected but separate, worrisome, trouble down the line. But it beats still and strongly. Its story is uncanny, its history as fluid as the water that is slowly wearing it away. If you could see it from above, this spearhead of folklore and history, you would see a jagged tear of land five nautical miles of gorse-jewelled mystery of madness. At its south, where the head of the spear would meet the haft, the island swoops low, stocky cliffs surmounted by the chapel and its little grove of trees and gravestones, bell tower clanging out the days. Following the line of the north coast, Perseverance Bay fans out, flat and sandy and wind-polished the steady estuary of water flowing from the whispering pool to the south, its stone-studded island pointing accusatory fingers to the heavens. Years ago, when that dirty dog Zeus was looking for a cell to hold his father, mad old Kronos, sun-eater, time-stealer, after the fight, after the dust settled, he came to Athen, hearing that beneath it lay a mighty chasm, locked with granite bars and sharp slate. But, lifting the island like a pebble on the shore, he found he had been beaten to it. Something old and sleeping was already down there, so he dragged his father to Scilly, or some other unfortunate archipelago, and pushed him down through the cracks between those islands, wedging him like a leopard hangs his kill, spine tingling at the memory of the god beneath the rock before hightailing it back to the civility of the savagery he knew. No point dallying where the wild things are. Kronos still snores under Silly, but who knows what's under Ethan. On the opposite side of the island to the bay, where at low tide the crab-carried skewers of masts from the HMS Perilous can be seen when the tide is low, is the village an uneasy alliance of fishermen's cottages that creep towards the sea from the cover of the trees so as not to spook the fish. They're empty now, so no, you didn't see a curtain move. There was nobody shooting nets. There is no figure on the end of the curved harbour wall, a patchwork of block, each layer different as the wall has been rebuilt. There are seals in the sanctuary of water inside of them. Three grey, two brown, one black, one white. The sign of the gunwale, the only pub on the island, is faded now. It was a popular haunt, never bothered by the excise men, no hidden stash or secret whistle. In you went, drink you got. It's hard to see it from this angle, but there, look, now I'll point. Can you see it? 
embedded in the harbour wall, an ancient rusted harpoon, barbed deep in the mortar. Lodged there by old Vin Tom, on a bet by his crewmates. Old Vin who drowned. Old Vin who should have known better. Really. Are you enjoying the tour? The rest will do by foot. You can check I was telling the truth about the rest of the island later. You'll have to trust me for now. Walk quickly through the ruined shape of the village that skirts the harbour. History hiding in the trees. Now is not the time to venture or explore off the path. Night is falling quickly, and with the hag mist bearing down on you, there's little time to spare. The track is rough and unused to travellers. Trees bowing low to block your way and catch, catch at your clothing. The little ruts along the trail made by smaller feet than yours. Turn your coat inside out. And picking carefully amongst the ghosts of a carriageway, it takes hours and hours before the hall is before us. Athen Hall. Thrown into relief by the lighthouse beam that strobes from its shelf on the high cliff behind the hall. Unmanned, but working. Always working. But yes, the hall. There above you. Lights on and waiting. Greedy for a guest. The staff are there to greet you, though they hang back in the shadows, ushering another weary traveller into the golden glow of lamplight. Easier to use when electric light is so capricious in a storm. And as the door closes behind you, night falls. High above, sitting on his cloud, Gog Magog closes his one remaining eye, and there's nothing more till morning. Rest now. Blasted by fire and wind, the fresh burnt gorse smells of damp ash and spring. The village sleeps in, tired from the late night revelries of the more wide bonfire. Nobody walks the crackling, smouldered pathways that crisscross the fire scorched crown of the island. Nobody but two one tall, one short. Their silhouettes jarring against the dawn-light sky, they pick their way carefully, bending now and then to inspect something in the charcoal ground. The taller one pulls the charred remains of an adder from the earth. Long, bony fingers pry the snake apart, dry and shriveled as it is. Curiosity satisfied, the remains are allowed to fall back into the charnelled mess on the floor. They are old, these two. Twins birthed into a dawning world, they live in the darker places. The taller stands eight feet high, long-limbed and ponderous, his bony white face peering beneath the antler-crowned headdress he wears with pride. Fabric strips hang from the spars like prayer flags, or bunting. Like his sister, he is dressed in black. Though he has no name, people call him Stag. His sister trots low to the ground, the top of her head level with her brother's thigh. Though small, she is strong. Sinew-bound arms pump at her side as she works to keep up with her longer-legged sibling. She cannot afford to stop and rummage through the curios at her feet. She would fall behind. A wide, soft hat squats low on her brow, 
flaps of fabric that cover her ears join the black on top with the black below, a tangle of cloth that swaddles her. She is known as Hilla. They don't talk. They know why they are here, and besides, they enjoy the quiet. They enjoy the smoke rising to meet the morning mist as they stride between the twisted black fingers of the gorse. Here and there amongst the black, a shining dart of yellow clings to life. A flower the fire has missed. The gorse needs curbing. Unchecked, it would spread and the whole island would be a thorn-filled tangle from tor top to sea cave. As the two siblings pass through, they notice a man asleep on a bed of heather. He sleeps soundly, arms cradling the empty bottle he has chosen as a bedmate. Hilla's fingers stroke his brow as they pass, and the man jerks fitfully in his slumber, crying out for comfort as his fisherman's head fills with storm-whipped seas, a boat aground, a crew lost. Still, better hers than her brother's touch. Already there are signs of life in the black. Seeds poke green heads above ground, and in the ponds and pools that were sheltered by the fire, frog spawn lies thick and matted, tadpoles twitching under the remaining water. A hare picks over the ground, darting looks as it traverses a space normally protected from hunting eyes. The pair have reached the village now, and are circling the houses, talking quietly to each other. Benefits and consequences are weighed and argued over, fingers point and gesture in the mist. Eventually, they settle on a house, a mother and child lying within. Perhaps the father is the man they passed on the heath. Perhaps not. Regardless, Hilla and Stag entered together under the low oak doorway. Stag sits with the woman, wrapping his long arms tight around her. Her eyes open, but she is not awake, not really. She struggles at the presence she can feel at her back. The weight, the shadow in the dark, and she is terrified of what might be revealed in the light. She will stay this way until morning, when she will wake with a start, unrested and fitful for the day ahead. Hilla's touch runs deeper. She sits on the edge of the young boy's bed and sings lullabies into his ear. The words are low and muffled, their meaning lost, but like the man on the heath, the lad's brows crease and he tosses in his bedclothes. Hilla does not know what he sees, that is not her gift. She cannot see the horses running after him, just like the summer before, when he disturbed a foal in its mother. He runs now like he did then, but these horses are faster, heavier. He can see the clods of earth lifting from the ground as their hooves beat patterns into the earth, the white foam that bubbles from their mouths flecked with red. When he wakes, he will run to his mother's side and wrap his arms around her. Some houses they visit, some they leave alone. Neither could tell you how the choice is made. As the first curl of smoke rises from a chimney, they turn and begin to climb back up and over the heath. See at their backs, 
wind right through them. Who can say what their excursion has given them? They look neither more nor less happy than when they arrived. Perhaps, like the fire that raged the night before, they had no choice but to consume. I know where they live, but I will keep that to myself. It would not serve you well to know. The sleeping man wakes with a start and drops his bottle onto a rock below. The glass shines in a new day's sun and the world begins again. Odd, isn't it? Part poem, part story, part guidebook. It's funny, the more I read it, the more familiar it seems. The arrival on the island especially. I hope you've liked it, this episode. The next story in the book is called The Gorse Giant, and I'll read it next month. If you'd like to get in touch, please do. Find me on Instagram or go to the website, graniteandglitter.com. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.